0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, Convocation Lecture. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474.
1: As many of you know, Robert Den Dendolk, along with his wife, Uh, Nelly served our institution very faithfully and graciously for about five years as its president and before that as its VP. To honor his love for pastoral ministry and training pastors, uh, a lecture series was established a couple decades ago in order to bring in established pastors and scholars to speak to us about pastoral ministry. This morning and tomorrow and Thursday, we are honored to have the Reverend Dr. John Payne with us. Uh, John serves at uh, Christ Church Presbyterian, a PCA church in Charleston, where one of our grad- graduates, Ross, also serves alongside him at this stage. And he's been a longtime serving pastor in the PCA, not only serving here at Christ Church, but also serving in Georgia. He was educated in Clemson, Reformed Theological Seminary, and the University of Edinburgh New College. He's a visiting lecturer in practical theology at RTS Atlanta, convener of the Gospel Reformation Network, and the series co-editor and contributor to Lectio Continua, uh, expository commentary that many of you have been exposed to. Many of you might know him not only through the online presence that he has, as well as his preaching, but through the books that he's published. He has published books like the John Owen on the Lord's Supper, in the Splendor of His Holiness, Rediscovering the Beauty of Reformed Worship for the 21st Century, A Faith Worth Teaching, The Heidelberg Catechism, and Its Enduring Heritage. These are all the books that you can find at our bookstores as well, and you will get a chance to get to know him a little bit better. Perhaps more importantly, he's married to Marla, who also joins him here this week, and then they have two children, Mary Hannah and Hans. Uh, just a little note about him on a personal side. For those of you who love soccer, he was a professional soccer player. So if you think you're good, uh, perhaps you might ask him to join you sometime this week and he can show you actually how to play soccer um, in terms of the skill sets that he might have. Also, there's one more thing I want to mention briefly personally. It's his 29th birthday today. And so if you run into him sometime today on campus, please, please say a happy birthday to him. We're so grateful that he and his wife, Marla, are taking this time away from family to be with us, to encourage us. So John, please join us as he delivers this morning the lecture titled, The 21st Century Formed Pastor in Piety. Give us the word.
0: Thank you so much, Joel. So, Blessing to be here back in my home state. I grew up in Santa Clara, California, about six hours from here. And it's wonderful to feel the California sunshine on my face again. And uh, I do also want to thank the faculty and board of Westminster Seminary, California, for inviting us uh, out here. It's such a a joy and a privilege. Uh, There are uh, three reasons why Westminster Seminary, uh, California, uh, have always had a a deep uh, place in my heart. And uh, the first one is that uh, as a, as a, see, I guess I was about 20 years old, uh, studying at Clemson University. Uh, I had been converted about uh, a year before, and a kind of a radical conversion. I'll tell you about it sometime. <clears throat> and I was uh, I grew up grew up in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and so when I came to know the Lord, I kind of rejected uh, a lot of the uh, liturgical. Uh, 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 catechesis and, uh, and, and upbringing that I had, and, and so I, um, when I came to know Lord, I became a raging Arminian, and so uh, I went to a, an RUF retreat, and one of my friends begged me to go, and there was this guy speaking, he was 28 or 29 years old, he had these really big glasses, and his name was Mike Horton. And so I, I listened to his teaching, I thought, wow, this guy's pretty sharp, uh, but I wasn't convinced uh, about reformed soteriology, so I, I went up and began uh, firing questions at him after one of his lectures, and he was so gracious, and he said, you know, you should read this book that I recently wrote, it's called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. And so I read the book, and it was like I was converted all over again. Um, I invited Calvin to be my lord and savior, and <laughs> <clears throat> just kidding, I... I I became reformed and I went from being a raging Arminian to being a raging Calvinist. He should have been locked up for a couple of months. Um, and that was, that was all Mike's fault. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful, uh, really, uh, that uh, Mike's book and then a, a subsequent friendship with Mike and his, his latter books have been uh, very important to me. And I thank God uh, for his ministry and the ministry of Westminster because the wider faculty and their writings have had a, a huge influence uh, on shaping my, uh, my theology and my spirituality. And so I thank God uh, for the faculty here. I also thank God for Westminster Seminary. Uh, they've already been mentioned because of Ross and Joanna Hodges, uh, two graduates uh, of uh, Westminster who uh, five years ago uh, graduated from here and got in their car and drove across country to join us for our first worship service uh, in 2013, June of 2013 and they have been laboring uh, for the sake of the gospel in Charleston with Marla and me and the Lord has blessed their ministry and they've become uh, the dearest of friends and so I thank God for Westminster and it's a joy to be here on campus and to see uh, God's fingerprints all over this, uh, this, 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 this campus and uh, amidst the ministry that's gone on here and uh, so excited about the future of the work of the Lord here at Westminster This week, I do want to uh, speak to you about uh, the 21st-century reformed pastor. Uh, There is a lot being said about what it means to be a reformed pastor these days. Uh, I've I've been around long enough now to know that a lot of these ideas are errant and uh, not really rooted in our reformed confessional heritage and. And so what I want to talk to you about is the Reformed pastor, and there's, there's so much more that can be said about Reformed pastoral ministry than I will be able to, to say to you in these next uh, three days. But what I want to say, I believe, is very much at the, at the nucleus of what it means to be a Reformed pastor. And so while there will be some who are already uh, laboring in full-time pastoral ministry here, uh, there will be many of you who, of course, are uh, laboring in your studies to become a reform pastor in the future. Uh, some who are <clears throat> laboring as seminary professors. I believe that so much of what uh, I will say this week will uh, will uh, will clearly communicate to you the things that you need to hear and that I need to hear as we think about reformed ministry. We're going to think about it in a in a threefold way, and namely related to piety. Proclamation and prayer. Piety, proclamation, and prayer. Um, I hope we're going to learn that uh, the 21st century pastor's commitments are not supposed to be a whole lot different than the commitments of first century Christian ministers. And uh, I believe we need to recover uh, First-century biblical Christianity in our day, and I believe that is the expression of the Reformed faith uh, that we that we know and love. If you would, uh, as we begin to think for a few minutes about Reformed piety and the pastor, if you would turn with me to Psalm sixty-three. Psalm sixty-three. As we see some beautiful piety being expressed here, a true heart for God in the Psalm of David. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David speaking about his walk with the Lord personally and then moving into the sanctuary and then moving back and he's on his bed. His life was one of piety, public and private. Verse 9 But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think for a few minutes this morning about what it means to be a faithful, reformed pastor in relation to piety, walking with you, we ask that you would grant us wisdom, discernment, insight, and would you etch upon our minds and hearts that important principle that we are called to walk with you As Christian ministers, before we are called to teach others to walk with you. Oh Lord, would you give us this deep conviction? Would you continue to form it in our hearts? I pray particularly for the students who are training for the ministry, that they would go into the ministry with the right understanding of pastoral ministry, that they would be men committed to personal piety, to faithful public proclamation of your gospel and to both private and public prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We need a renaissance of pastoral piety in our day. The highest priority of every Christian minister must be to possess and nurture a vibrant walk with God, whether young or old, Uh, newly ordained or seasoned with decades of service. The minister's sincere, experiential, and personal relationship with God is essential to a lifetime of faithful and fruitful ministry. It's something that we've all been taught, right? We all know this. It's something we all believe. Nevertheless, due to the busyness, pressures, and challenges of life and ministry, it's something that pastors so easily forget. It's something we can all so easily neglect if we are not careful, if we are not vigilant. Thus the purpose for our subject this morning, to remind us of the importance of the minister's personal walk with God, that the Christian minister is a Christian first and then a minister. He is a child of God first and then a pastor. He is a disciple first and only then a disciple maker, a sheep first and then a shepherd. He is a member of God's household first and then a steward of that household, a citizen of God's kingdom first and then an ambassador. He is called to walk with God first before he leads and instructs others to do the same. Dear brothers and fellow pastors and future pastors, we need to get this. The Lord wants our hearts and our lives before he wants our ministry and our service. Let me say that again. The Lord wants our hearts. He wants your hearts and lives before he wants your ministry and your service. Indeed, ministry and service divorced from a sincere walk with God not only runs against the grain of scripture, it sows the poisonous seeds of duplicity in our hearts, seeds which which eventually grow into an assorted display of ministerial infidelities. The Lord wants his minister's hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us to walk with him in sincere piety before we step into our pulpits or we step up to the lectern. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, our our strength, and to delight ourselves in him above every single thing in this world. God wants to be our treasure because he knows that where our treasure is, there will be our what? Our hearts also. He wants us to offer up our hearts to him without condition and without qualification the French reformer John Calvin models this to us in a letter to his friend William Farrell in August of 1541 it was a letter in response to Farrell's uh, zealous encouragement to return to Geneva for the cause of reformation after having been banished for three years earlier by the by the Geneva City Council many of you know the story the city council after banishing Calvin they wanted him back they are offering him all kinds of things, barrels of wine and so forth. Just come back to us. Pharrell knew that Calvin was reluctant to return and would be happy to stay right where he was in peaceful Strasbourg with his, with his friend Martin Bootser. Calvin wrote to a friend about this possibility. He said, quote, I would prefer a hundred other deaths to this cross on which I would have to die a thousand times each day. I hope you never feel that way about your ministry in the future. Calvin felt this way about his ministry in Geneva. Even so, nevertheless, Calvin later wrote to Pharrell, but when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. I am not my own. I offer up my heart. I present it as a sacrifice to the Lord. Calvin's seal and motto portrayed as an open hand holding a heart sums it up beautifully. Cor meum tibi offero domine prompte et sinceri. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. What a wonderful thing to say every morning when you get up. My heart, I offer to you, O oh Lord, promptly and sincerely. Calvin's seal expresses an earnest prayer that his heart, that the core of his very being would be the Lord's, not abstractly, not theoretically, not in some general sense, but promptly and sincerely as evidence in a humble walk with God and in true piety. This beautiful expression of reformed piety was also set forth by uh, Ursinus in his 1563 Heidelberg Catechism. Question answer one, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. There he sees his piety as rooted in the gospel. He also preserves me in such a way, without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. As pastors, as seminary professors, as students training for the ministry, We know that walking closely with God and offering up our hearts promptly and sincerely are essential to a lifetime of faithful ministry. But what we know and how we live do not always match up. We know our personal relationship with the Lord is of highest importance. We know how crucial it is to keep watch over our own souls so that we are not led astray by the very temptations that we warn our own people about We know how critical it is to daily sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn from his word and to pour out our souls to him in prayer. And yet, and yet somehow, even as pastors, even as seminary professors, even as future pastors, our personal walk with God often gets pushed to the periphery of our lives. Or worse, or worse over time, For various reasons, it gets neglected altogether. And we become those pastors that we never thought we would be. Proclaiming the riches and loveliness of Christ to others. While giving our own hearts to other lovers. We fit Hosea's description of Judah in Hosea 6.4, our love to God is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. If we are honest with ourselves, we all know what this is like. We all know what it means for our hearts to grow cold towards God. Isn't this is why Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 to quote, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And why Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28 to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We cannot ever stop paying attention to the condition of our souls. You see, Paul knew, and more importantly, God knows that ordained leaders in the church are just as susceptible to spiritual drift as anyone. And perhaps we are more susceptible to spiritual drift than anyone because of the targets that are on our backs. The devil knows that if he takes down the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Sadly, we've seen evidence of this over the past several years. In fact, in preparation of this message, which has been burning on my heart for four or five years, due to the, uh, the many men in very high positions, in very public positions that have fallen into sin. We've seen this evidence. Gospel ministers, seminary professors, exchanging Christ for the destructive idols of sexual deviancy and power and money and ambition and celebrity, And a sobering thought, a sobering thought is that some who have fallen to these idols that we've just mentioned have have sat in these very pews, some of them perhaps preaching and teaching from this very lectern over the years, who have given in and fallen into disrepute They joined the mighty chorus of praise during chapel services. They read theologically rich books. They sat under great teaching and engaged in like-minded fellowship over meals and coffee. They went for walks and talked about the Lord's. But at one point, at one point, they stopped walking with God. They believed the lie that Christ isn't enough. At one point, they began worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Their public ministry may have been doctrinally sound and and impressive and maybe impressive to the wider church, but their private walk with God was non-existent. Should we ask, some of us in this room may be on this, this very path. Some of us may have... Stopped walking with God. We're going through the motions. We're putting on a show. Oh, that it wouldn't be the case, but it has been the case with so many. Could it be that there are men here this morning with a sound public ministry or a, or a, a public persona in their studies that gives one picture, but, but who have given into secret sin? Sins like pornography and substance abuse and inappropriate relationships. Could some of us in this room be described, as one writer put it, a man headed for disaster? My prayer for our time together this morning is that it would challenge us to examine ourselves and to turn from any known patterns of sin and to recommit ourselves to walking with God in sincerity and to offering up our hearts to him promptly and sincerely. And that being a 21st century reform minister is more than just having your theological ducks in a row. It's about walking with God and out of the overflow of your personal walk with God, ministering to others. There are, of course, many ways to approach this subject. But what I want to do is to talk for a few minutes about the subtleties of spiritual drip. The things that happen in our lives that cause us to move away from the Lord. You know, the devil is, is sneaky. Uh, he's, he doesn't always just come out and, and put things before us that are so evidently sinful. It's just small things. It's the, the erosion of piety that I want to speak with you about for a few minutes. And even within that, we'll be encouraged and exhorted in various ways. The first subtle way, I believe, the devil tricks us into Stopping our walk with the Lord is the disappearance of personal Bible reading and prayer. I can't believe I'm even saying this to a group of you know, seminary students and wonderful professors and, and others who have joined us who are obviously wanting to hear about the Lord. But this is, this is a fact that many have, have stopped reading their Bibles and praying Do you remember those early days of your walk with God? Uh, I remember when I came to know Christ uh, after my sophomore year at at Clemson University, Go Tigers, where my life was so radically changed. um, I went through a very radical conversion because of the lifestyle I was leading, and uh, I couldn't get enough of the scriptures. I had been cutting class because I had hangovers before I became a Christian. After I became a Christian, I was cutting class because I wanted to read my Bible, which is not a good thing, but I was hungry, zealous for the Word. I couldn't get enough time with the Lord. I, I really sensed that God was with me, and um, how we can move into patterns where we don't sense or feel the presence of God anymore and don't want to to be with him. Over time, devotional Bible reading and private prayer go from a joyful, daily, non-negotiable discipline to an irregular two to three times a week to a a once-in-a-while burden to finally a non-existent devotional life. Over time, we we can become prayerless. Prayerless ministers, think of it. Prayerless ministers who do not read our Bibles. Spiritual decline might take five years, maybe even ten years. Subtle temptations from the evil one, small compromises in our schedules, slowly dismantle our time with God. The devil has all the time. He's, he's got the, he's got, he, he may be looking and saying, in 10 years, I want it that this minister is not reading his Bible anymore or praying. And subtly, over the course of time, it'll break down. Abandoning one's personal time with the Lord is, I believe, one cause, a very primary cause of spiritual drift for ministers because it is our calling our full-time job, as it were, to study and publicly preach and teach the word of God, it is important, I believe, for the health of our own souls to have a designated time with the Lord, to pour out our souls to him in prayer, to meditate upon his word as it relates to our own lives, to connect with him personally, and not just in the, the context of public ministry. And I'm going to share later that we do connect with God personally in our public ministries too. It's very important. But we must also privately This time is a time to bask in the light of our loving Father, to throw ourselves into his safe and loving arms, to pray in sincerity with the psalmist that, that, Lord, see if there be any sinful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's a time to examine ourselves, to, to confess and turn from sin, to abide in Christ, to rest in his redeeming grace and to reflect upon his sovereign majesty and his unspeakable loveliness. It's a time to stir up Zeal and affection for God, to preach to our own souls the precious promises of the gospel. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. It's a time to read the imperatives of His law as a guide for our lives. We need this daily identity recalibration about who we are and whose we are by spending time in the Word and in prayer. I don't know about you, but I get so frustrated with my iPhone, I'm feeling like I'm always having to turn it off and turn it on to get it working again. There's a sense in which we need that reboot with the Lord regularly as we pursue him in Bible reading and prayer. It's a daily time to put on the armor of God, spiritual armor of God, armor which God gives to us by his grace, and to remember that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against wicked and unseen principalities. It's a time of preparation for the day ahead, a time of prayer. Thomas Watson said this, quote, a Christian is better after prayer. He has gained more strength over sin as a man by exercise gets strength. The heart after prayer keeps a tincture of holiness as the vessel favors and relishes the wine that is put into it. Some call this daily time with God. I've heard it. I've heard it. Some call this daily time with God at best unnecessary and at worst a legalism. Legalistic to spend time with God. I suppose it can be if one thinks that they are earning their place with God by reading their Bibles faithfully. But really what this is is an amazing privilege and a joy and an important part of a healthy walk with God. And isn't it intuitive that we spend time with the people that we love. It's one thing to tell my wife that I love her. It's quite another to spend time with her. The same goes for my children. You guys know how it is. Uh, you're preparing, a, those of you that have children, you're preparing a, an essay for class or you're writing a lecture or you're working on a book and your, your child comes up and says, hey dad, you wanna go shoot baskets? <sighs> yes, I do. I've, I've got to get this done. I'm sorry, son. Okay. He droops his head, walks out of the room. Then you feel guilty and you put your stuff down and you go play. We spend time with the people that we love. We have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness when we are exercising our faith. I wonder if you've heard the story of the man from Kansas who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight. He lost his hearing. He, his, his hands were, were burnt. He was a newly converted Christian, and it was known that one of his greatest disappointments was that he could not read his Bible. Then he heard about a lady in, in England who was uh, reading Braille with her lips. Uh, and, and she was reading a Bible in Braille with her lips. And so he was excited that I could maybe read Bible with my lips, so he, he got this, this Braille Bible, and he ran his lips over, realized his lips were too burnt, couldn't happen. But then his tongue grazed over the characters. And he started putting his tongue over the characters, and he learned how to read Braille with his tongue, and he read the Bible four times with his tongue, when this illustration had, uh, had emerged. Oh, that we would hunger for God and his word like this man. Oh, that we would recognize the subtle ways that Satan, the world, and our sinful flesh have deceived us into thinking that we could ever mature beyond the need to spend simple time with God. And that a strong devotional life is some kind of superfluous holdover from the pietist age. Psalm 46.10, we are exhorted to be still, what? And know that he is God. Be still and know that I am God, he says. When you pray, go into your room and pray to your heavenly Father in secret and your Father will reward you. Go boldly before his throne of grace. Christ has made a way for you to commune with Almighty God. So commune with him. So that's one important cause of spiritual drift, the disappearance of personal devotion. But there are others I want to mention and comment on briefly and I hope that you'll You'll hold on to these as you go into pastoral ministry, because these are very real things that pastors deal with. Ministry can be discouraging. Can I hear an amen on that? (laughs) Ministry can be discouraging. The elder that unexpectedly undermines your leadership. The hypercritical church member who critiques your preaching through an email, of course. And then attaches several John Piper sermons to teach you how to preach. <laughs> the officers who won't attend evening worship, the lack of encouragement from members and, and officers, discouragement for many pastors can lead to spiritual drift. Because discouragement amidst the pressures of ministry can lead pastors to turn their attention away from the Lord. To other things, rather than seek the Lord for grace and strength, the discouraged minister will often look to other things to numb the pain of thorny ministry. It happens all the time in subtle ways. In subtle ways, over time, the discouraged minister begins to look to other things to bring him joy and contentment, even meaning. He begins to spend inordinate time, uh, amount of time on on social media. or on Netflix, or exercising at the gym, or traveling, or focusing on sports, or worse, getting caught up in a web of sin. I've seen this over and over again, and I have felt my own heart being drawn in these ways. The problem starts, of course, when we allow our identity in Christ to be confused with our calling and success in ministry. So that when ministry becomes hard, we stray from God rather than walk with him more closely which is what every discouraged minister needs to do. Are you discouraged in ministry? Are you discouraged with your studies? Perhaps things aren't going as well as you thought they would. Perhaps you're not as smart as you thought you were when you came to seminary. I remember my first week of seminary I I had my eight theological books. I thought I was hot stuff. I thought I knew something. Um, It's usually the people that think they know something that actually know nothing, by the way. So I I had my eight books. I thought I was so smart. And then I walked into Dr. Douglas Kelly's class, and he spoke like eight languages um, in that class, in that lecture. Uh, Just writing all this German and French and Latin and Hebrew and Greek. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, this is incredible. And then I walked into his office to speak to him after class, and he had 8,000 books in his Personal library, which is a which is a giant classroom, and um, maybe you maybe you're you're struggling in school. Um, maybe you're a pastor and you're getting hateful looks from from people while you're preaching. That that happens, by the way. You will preach to people that want you dead in the pulpit. It's not all roses, ministry is not. And you must learn to love them when they are glaring at you and to preach God's truth to them in a way that doesn't make it sound like you're only preaching to them as well. I've had to make phone calls before to church members to say, listen, I know you and I have had some disagreements in the last couple of weeks And the text that I'm preaching on is actually going to be speaking about some of those things. But I'm not talking just to you. I'm talking to everybody. Just want you to know that. (laughs) Sometimes you have to make those calls. When these discouragements happen, don't run to the world or to possessions or to hobbies or to entertainment or to sexual sin to numb the pain. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Walk with him. As you go through your trials... Six months into our church plant, I found that I had two nodules on my neck. Six months earlier, my dad died of throat cancer. So we're freaking out, of course. Through a series of tests, I find out I have thyroid cancer. Great, six months into the church plant, I'm done. I'm, I'm Ross, have a good time. Um, what do you do in those moments? When, when faith and life collide, do you try to numb the pain through entertainment, through Netflix, through sexual uh, immorality? Or do you go to the Lord? Jesus is a well of grace and strength that never runs dry. You shouldn't forget that. Don't let a little discouragement quench your zeal for God. Rather, may it cause you to cling to him even tighter. Isn't that the point of our trials? The Lord would test our faith and draw us closer to him. The third subtle cause of spiritual drift I want to mention is patterns of duplicity. That is, those patterns in our lives where there is a disparity between what we present in our public persona and ministry and who we are in private and in our homes. Over time, under the busyness and stress of ministry, ministers can get more and more comfortable with patterns of duplicity, challenging his congregation to have family worship while he himself does not, exhorting his congregation not to be slanderous when he's very happy to slander others on a regular basis. The minister's growing... Duplicity makes him uncomfortable with quiet time before the Lord, so he stops pursuing the Lord personally. He stops going to the prayer closet and reading scripture devotionally. His public ministry over time becomes merely a performance for his hearers and a means to status and a paycheck. When a minister does not guard his soul from patterns of duplicity, he eventually stops walking with God and he opens himself up to a world of temptation and sin. He's like a a city without walls. He becomes a spiritual schizophrenic, a godly, respectable minister in public, and something else altogether in private and at home. Often the minister's wife and children notice this duplicitous life more and more and see a difference between what he preaches and how he lives. He is kind to the members of his flock, but short-tempered and irritable at home. His talks about the importance of Bible reading He talks about the importance of Bible reading before his members and yet his kids never see him reading his Bible. We cannot allow the weeds of duplicity to grow in the garden of our hearts. We must pull them up when they are small for if they become big they will utterly destroy any true spirituality. We've all seen this. We've all seen this. One of the most esteemed, highly thought of, reformed pastors in the world fell into sin. Actually, it was a long, uh, something that was happening over the course of years. And then when it was exposed, he took his own life. He took his own life. He was a friend to many of us. We now know that for many years he was carrying on various extramarital affairs, all the while pastoring one of the largest and most beloved churches in the Free Church of Scotland. He was speaking at high profile. Reformed conferences in the UK and in America. He was holding leadership and teaching positions at Edinburgh Theological Seminary. He was writing engaging and theologically insightful books and articles for magazines like Table Talk. I was told that a few months after he took his life and all this was exposed that he was due to speak on the topic of temptation at a Banner of Truth conference. Many of us have asked, how could this happen? Well, the way it happened was that subtle, duplicitous behaviors turned into larger and more regular ones, which eventually turned into a life of duplicity and heinous sin. And at one point in the process, his personal personal relationship with the Lord vanished altogether. We can learn a lot from this, but one thing I want to mention is this one. Please get this. Confessional and theological orthodoxy is not synonymous with a healthy walk with God. Confessional and theological orthodoxy is not synonymous with a healthy walk with God. Theological acumen doesn't immunize pastors from ministerial infidelity. Doctrinal precision doesn't inoculate ministers against sexual sin. There was no one more theologically astute in the world than this man. Even what he was writing in those years of living this duplicitous life were incredibly encouraging to the souls of tens of thousands of people. And yet he was living a double life. When asked by a family member how he could carry on as he did for so many years, you know what his answer was? I relied on my natural gifts and intellect. Now, that is chilling. And isn't that the great temptation in our reformed circles to rely upon natural gifts and intellect in a, in a subculture of Christianity, as it were, that really esteems intellectual gifts and being stimulated intellectually, loves talking about theology and so forth? Isn't that a temptation? Oh, that we would not rely on our natural gifts and intellect in ministry, but that we'd rely on the Lord. That we'd rely upon his spirit, upon his strength and wisdom, walking humbly. Theological acumen is not synonymous with spiritual health or spiritual maturity. Don't let there be a disparity between your time reading theology and your time on your knees in humble prayer. Samuel Miller, in a lecture to theological students in the 1830s, said this, quote, "...men may hold the truth with intelligent accuracy and contend for it with earnestness without submitting to its power. He who receives with ever so much speculative exactness the genuine doctrines of the gospel just as the Savior left them cannot be said in the best sense of the word to follow him unless, quote, he give him his heart." unless he receive his truth in the love of it, unless he unfiendly yield to him his love and confidence as his great high priest and king as well as his prophet. He goes on to write that gospel minister then who, follows, who truly follows Christ is not only sound in the faith but also a converted man, a cordial, devoted, experimental Christian, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost who speaks that which he knows And testifies that which he has experienced, who loves his master and his work above all things, and who accounts it his highest honor to be like Christ, and his meat and drink to do his will. He rejects the aspirings of carnal ambition. He is willing to learn of him who is meek and lowly of heart, and to be himself nothing, that Christ may be all in all. The glory of Christ is the great end for which he lives." Oh, that we would never be those whom it would be said of us. He honored me with his lips, but his heart was far from me. In his well-known book, The Reformed Pastor, Richard Baxter, writes, quote, "O sirs, how many men have preached Christ and yet have perished for want of saving interest in him? How many who are now in hell have told their people of the torments of hell and warned them to escape from it? How many have preached the wrath of God against sinners who are now enduring it? Oh what sadder case can there be in the world than for a man who made it his very trade and calling to proclaim salvation and to help others to heaven yet after all to be himself shut out. And all because he preached so many sermons of Christ while he neglected him. A fourth reason, subtle reason for drift is overconnectivity. I don't want to say a lot about this, but I think I need to mention it in our day and age as you guys check your texts and emails on this uh, this point. The minister's walk with God can be negatively impacted by spending too much time online. We live in a world of distractions, especially when we fall prey to the need for perpetual connectivity. Social media, texts, emails, emails, And all the other distractions. Are we addicted to distraction? There's a wonderful book which I would really encourage all of you uh, to read. Uh, It's by Tony Reinke called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. It is absolutely fantastic. He says in there that we check our smartphones about 81,500 times each year. Or about once every 4.3 minutes. Uh, You know the phone grab? Got to grab your phone. That that sort of, your hand just, even if your phone's not around, just kind of reaches out and
1: grabs.
0: (laughs) He says in his book, you'll be tempted to check your phone three times before finishing this chapter. He says, quote, it's no wonder we habitually grab our phones first thing in the morning, not only to turn off our alarms, but also to check email and social media in a half-conscious state of sleep inertia before our groggy eyes can fully open. I know this is a particular problem for you, Bob, and all the social media that you do. Yes. But here's the warning as Christians. If we fail to manage life's distractions wisely, we will lose our urgency, he writes. And in the sobering words of one smartphone-addicted mom of young children, we may, quote, forget how to walk with the Lord. Distraction management is a critical st- skill for spiritual health, and no less in the digital world age. We need to redeem the time. And ministers typically don't have someone looking over their shoulder all the time to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Hence, lots of ministers falling into these patterns of being more connected to their iPhone than they are to God. Redeem the time. Don't waste the time. Samuel Miller, in his book, in his uh, sermon called The Sacred Office Magnified writes this, quote, how deeply to be pitied is that minister who can find hours to waste in idleness or on trifles when a world is dying around him and when he is surrounded not only with opportunities but with importunate calls to labor for the temporal and eternal welfare of his fellow man, End quote. The next thing that causes spiritual drift is ungodly ambition, Wanting public acclaim, wanting to be noticed, losing integrity in the midst of that ambition. There's so much self-promotion going on uh, online. We need to humble ourselves to truly want in our hearts for Christ to become more and, and our name to become less. The prideful pastor is the prayerless pastor, a man who's on his knees in prayer is not a man that's promoting himself all the time. The prideful pastor has jettisoned a simple time alone with the Lord. The prideful pastor thinks that the kingdom of God is dependent upon his busyness. The prideful pastor is hardened to his own need for the body of Christ and the ministry of the means of grace. He stops being authentic and vulnerable before others. The next thing is Isolation. The minister is a member of the body of Christ, thus he needs what every member needs, the fellowship and care of the body. We often will get isolated, and that often comes from people hurting us. You get a few stabs in the back, you get people betraying you in ministry, and your heart just slowly gets closed off to others, and then you start holding people at arm's length. And what happens when you do that? It is to your spiritual depriment, pastor and future pastor. I cannot tell you the number of times there have been people that have sat around my table, my wife has fed them, and we've had wonderful fellowship and have just turned around and stabbed me in the back. It happens. Will you choose to forgive and to love them and to continue to be vulnerable and authentic in ministry? We need to love rather than become bitter. Bitterness in ministry will lead to spiritual drift. Don't become cynical and bitter in ministry. I've seen it a thousand times. And the fruit of that kind of attitude is not good. So, in the remainder of our time, just a couple of exhortations for walking with God then as we as we think through this issue of being a man of piety as a 21st century Reformed pastor. Number one, prioritize and actively cultivate your personal walk with God. Prioritize this. Make room in your daily schedule to foster and stir up your love and devotion to Christ. Don't get too busy to walk with God. It sounds so funny, doesn't it? I'm a pastor, a little too busy to walk with God, but everything else is going great. It sounds funny, but... So many are doing that. I have done that. I have done that. I have, I have done that. All pastors have done that at one stage or another. And we must resist that. Don't get too busy to walk with God. Don't get busy too busy uh, that you overlook his beauty and his glory. We live, uh, my, my wife and I, we live in the South Carolina low country. Charleston, South Carolina. It's not Charlottesville. It's not Charlotte. It's Charleston, South Carolina, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's a place of extraordinary beauty. The stunning beaches, the expansive marsh views, the picturesque cobblestone streets and colonial architecture, the amazing wildlife and the salty sea air. The beauty is everywhere. And yet what you hear from people who have lived there for a long time is that they have stopped enjoying it. They're too busy. They're they're going to work and they're coming home and they're taking care of the kids and they're driving them to soccer and they're doing all this stuff and they forget to see the beauty of the area. Well, we are sometimes like this with God and ministry. We get to a place where we stop noticing the one we preach. Part of reacquainting ourselves with God is spending time with him in personal devotion. This takes discipline, not just goodwill and good intentions. We need to make a plan. We need to set a course of action. We need to choose a place. We need to change it up from time to time. Yes, we're human. We can can get stale in our devotional lives. Do something different. I remember one year when I was in seminary, actually, I read through Lloyd-Jones' sermons on Ephesians. There are like a gazillion of them. And you can just read one a day and you read right through. Not only are you getting wonderful uh, encouragement uh, from this, this extraordinary minister, but you are learning also how to, how to preach the Word of God. And don't preach a 300 sermon series right after you get to the seminary, okay? Uh, but learn about how he takes God's Word seriously and proclaims it. Read biography. Always read. Biography. Have one going all the time. Encourage you. With a strong walk with God, the minister possesses a peculiar freedom, joy, and power in public ministry. He experiences and even deeply feels that which he proclaims through word and sacrament. With it, the gospel is not just a collection of important ideas, but truth that burns in his heart and leads him to communion with God. With a sincere walk with God, there's no disparity. No great disparity between the minister's public ministry and his private life. He cherishes in private the God that he preaches in public. When we are walking with God and growing in him in a vibrant and genuine way, then our preaching and teaching will reflect that life and growth. We will minister from a deep well of Christian knowledge and experiential grace. Joseph Aline, the Puritan, said this, "'Come from your knees to the sermon and from the sermon to your knees.'" It's hard for a minister to give to others what he does not possess himself. If you stop living and growing in God's grace, you will begin to try to do all of this in your own strength and power. And that's the beginning of the end. You know, some of you may be young mothers that are here today, but if uh, if your kids are grown up, you remember those days when you set out all the meals on the, on the plates and then you had to help everybody eat and get things ready and then your food would get cold. So moms oftentimes don't get a warm meal for like 10 years unless they go out to eat. You know, sometimes we as ministers, we are so busy feeding the flock that we forget about feeding ourselves. A malnourished pastor cannot last and will not last. Secondly, foster Lord's Day piety and abide in Christ through the means of grace. Foster Lord's Day piety and abide in Christ through the means of grace. I am just astounded at the number of conversations I have where I'm trying to convince people to set apart one day to walk with God in a kind of concentrated way. People are arguing against spending a day with the Lord. I, don't, I just don't get that. And in our own tradition where we actually have a confessional heritage that encourages obeying the fourth commandment. We need Lord's Day piety. We need to recover this for our own hearts as ministers. Don't just and don't just administer the means of grace on the Lord's Day. Drink deeply of them yourself. Public worship is not just for your people, it's for you as well. You are actively abiding in Christ as a minister. Sometimes people say to me, "Pastor John, when do you take your Sabbath?" I always say, "On the Sabbath, what do you mean, when do I take my Sabbath? I take it on the Sabbath. I, I, I teach Sunday school. I preach twice. I go to the prayer meeting. I lead that. I, we have people in our home. And it's wonderful. Now, are you asking me when I rest? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, Monday mornings. I spend some time with my wife. It's wonderful. The Lord's Day is a day of feasting, not just for our people, but for us as ministers. So this sounds kind of funny, but... Sit under your own ministry of word and sacrament. When you are preaching the word of God, it's not just for them, it's for your soul. As you've prepared that in the study, as you deliver it, you will be hearing things coming out of your own mouth. You're thinking, I need to hear this. (laughs) If you are not feeding on Christ in your own services, you will dry up. I mean, you're going to be a minister one day and you will hear yourself preach, which you will get tired of from time to time, by the way, but you will be hearing your own ministry all the time. And so you must feed on the word of God and the means of grace as you administer them or you will dry up. Are we leading people to the riches of Christ and not partaking of them ourselves? Do we lead people to the bounteous feast of grace in Christ while we ourselves neglect to eat? Samuel Miller put it this way, ministers then while they undertake to teach others ought ever to place themselves and to feel as humble learners at the feet of him whose they are and whom they serve. A third important thing in connection to our piety and walking with God is that we plan short and long seasons of rest. I haven't always been good at this but it's, uh, it's been getting better I think. Still working on it. But this is so important, we need rest. And sometimes it's not hard work ethic that causes us to skip our vacation times and, and, and carry on. Sometimes it's pride. Ah, I can't take a vacation, God needs me. Can't leave the flock, can't leave, they, they, they need me, everyone needs me, I can't slow down. That's wrong, that's wrong. God doesn't need you, doesn't need me, doesn't need us to skip vacations. And by the way, your wife needs a vacation too. We need times of rest. We need to go for a walk. We need to go for a run. We need to go outside. We need to get away from the TV and the phones. We need to, 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 to hear the sounds of nature and the, the smell the smells of nature and, and, and go outside. It's therapeutic. It's meant to be. Go outside. Spend some time outside. You live in a beautiful area, you know. John Stott, um, I read his biography a few years ago, and, and was reading about how he loved bird watching, and I'm like, that is so lame. What is that? <laughs> bird watching? Well, I couldn't get into it, you know. And and then I'm, I'm as I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm always looking at birds, and Charleston, the Low Country, is filled with all of these marvelous birds. My wife bought me a bird book, got some binoculars, and my kids are constantly saying, Dad, what is your problem? (laughs) Yeah, we saw that bird last week, Dad, that's great. But you know, there's something therapeutic about watching creation, seeing the fingerprints of God over all the beauty he's made. He could have made it all in black and white. He gave it colors and beauty and glory and smells. and It's fantastic. Fourthly, fourthly, cultivate strong ministerial friendships. Folks you can be vulnerable with. Do you have friends in your life? Even now as a student, do you have friends in your life that can ask you, how is your soul, brother? I have friends that call me and ask me that question all the time. And I want them to. How is your soul? How is your walk with God? How is your prayer life, John? you reading the scriptures on your own in addition to what you're doing for preparation? We need those friendships. One of the wonderful things about the new John Knox biography uh, from some letters that were discovered by Jane, Jane Dawson at the University of Edinburgh is a, a wonderful friendship was discovered that John Knox had. And, and um, we need friendships. Fifthly and finally, remember who you are. ...and whose you are. Remember who you are. Calvin could offer his heart to Christ... ...promptly and sincerely... ...because his identity... ...was chiefly in Christ. He knew he belonged... ...to Christ. The most important thing about you... ...is not your ministry. It's not your future ministry. It's not your grades. It's not your fancy education... It's not your social media following. It's not your publishing endeavors. It's not the number of people that may want to hear you preach. It's that you are greatly loved by God. You are greatly loved by God. You know, Daniel didn't even get finishing, get to finishing his prayer in Daniel 9 because Angel Gabriel came and interrupted him and told him, I have a vision and I'm going to tell you the answer to your prayer. And he said... Because you are what? Greatly loved. It's this beautiful little moment there. It's when you come to texts like that, you need to put down the flag and you need to preach that to your people. The most important thing about you is that you are greatly loved by God. And think of this He wants to walk with you. God. God wants to walk with you by his grace let us do so offering our hearts to him promptly and sincerely as 21st century reform pastors let us pray father we thank you so much that you are a god of grace and mercy we thank you for the blood and righteousness of your son we thank you that in him we are pardoned for all of our sins that we are beneficiaries and receivers of your imputed righteousness by faith and that we have an eternal inheritance and glory in your presence where there is the fullness of joy. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be taken up with you, that you would be our treasure, that like Enoch, we would want to walk with you and that we'd be known as those, not who are first and foremost uh, preachers or authors or any of that, but... But that we be called men who fear God and who walk with Him. Lord, we love you and pray for your, your Holy Spirit uh, power uh, to enable us to walk with you uh, more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California